Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Leonard, and you're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. I'm the author of Visualizing Happiness in Every Area of Your Life. And today, my guest is Mr. Stephen Wing. Now, Stephen Wing was a missionary kid who grew up overseas. Re-entry to the United States as an adolescent was rough, but a summer camp experience, canoeing in the Canadian wilderness, got him through it. Those trips every summer became his sanctuary, and the wilderness is still his spiritual center wherever he is. In college, Stephen discovered hitchhiking and graduated without a plan in his head, except to travel the country. He majored in writing, but became a poet when he realized he could write about things that actually meant something to him, which at that point was hitchhiking, rather than as kind of an intellectual game. Letting go of destinations and deadlines, Stephen found that life has its own innate intelligence and would teach him what he needed to know if he released the need for control. After 12 years on the road, Stephen met his wife, Dawn, and settled in Atlanta. He worked as an editor and recycler, got involved in political activism, organized interfaith gatherings to celebrate the equinoxes and solstices, and eventually started leading seasonal workshops for poets, each time in a different nature preserve or green space around the city. That led to the publication of Wild Atlanta. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you, Kimberly. Yeah, so excited to have you here and hear your stories because I know you have some good stories. So why don't we start out by, you know, just telling us how you started out and how you got to be doing what you're doing now. Well, I've always been a writer and a reader. And um, pretty much in college, I really discovered I wasn't that good at anything else. So that became my focus. And I I discovered um, after graduating from college that um, it was fairly easy to get my writing published as long as I didn't care about getting paid. Um, there's a lot, lots of opportunities out there to share that skill in meaningful ways. So uh, that became my, my chief contribution as an activist in several different um, aspects of my life. I always found that that played a role. Now, um, in uh, when I began working, uh, after I met my wife and settled in Atlanta, I, I found uh, not only writing, but, but speaking when I was uh, coordinating the recycling at my company, which is a book wholesaler. Um, I found that um, my skills were valuable to help educate people about why to recycle in addition to how. And um, that interest kind of broadened um, to uh, I started writing articles for the local free newspapers, the, the free monthlies in town, and uh, basically trying to um, give people a new perspective on the environment um, and uh, their role in the ecology. Um, I found it um, it was helpful to get to get people out of the rut of their normal way of thinking about these things and just coming up with new angles to introduce the concept of um, playing a a conscious part in the ecosystem, which we all do more or less unconsciously, but waking people up to the fact that that we are part of nature and um, we are a kind of a critical part at this point um, in history as things are rapidly unraveling out there in the natural world and so much depends on people waking up and becoming conscious participants in the the ecosystem around them, uh, learning their, um, developing a relationship with nature, a personal relationship with nature, which is what um, indigenous people have always had, um, the nature around them, the animals and plants, even the, the um, the stones and the trees were all considered part of their family, part of their community. And that's what kept things in balance. So uh, bringing back that awareness is a key part of, of what I'm doing as a writer. And since I retired from my, my uh, money earning work, I've more or less gone full time into that. And the publication of this book, Wild Atlanta, has kind of opened up a new world to me uh, in trying to promote the book 
Um, I'm having to seek out opportunities to speak, to read poetry, um, to do more workshops. Um, it sort of forced me out of my comfort zone. I got a grant from the city of Atlanta to publish the book, mm -hmm. which is a kind of a natural fit because it's about the nature preserves of Atlanta, which are many, and um, trying to encourage people to make use of those and make them part of their life. So, um, but once I got the grant, I had to go through with it, publish the book, uh, spend the money, and and then start trying to market it. And that has been very eye-opening and led me into all kinds of unexpected connections and relationships. So I'm, I'm just really grateful for, for being there, not really having planned it, but making the most of it. Exactly. You know, you never know how things work out. I was actually researching for something else and I saw your website and I saw said this is cool I need to I need to call these people who wrote this book and have them on the podcast so it's just so funny how thin those threads can be that that connect yeah. us and, and, I'm just and that's so a good example because you mentioned my co-author who's a photographer and we met at a a fundraiser, a musical event where there was loud music playing mm -hmm. and we could barely hear each other. And of course it was kind of dark. We couldn't see each other that well, but we were talking and um, I found out she was a photographer. So I described my project because the poems, um, I had written the poems as I went along. I'd been doing these workshops for 10 years every season. And the, each time I come back with at least one poem, and I realized that it was a natural book project, but it really needed those photographs. Mm -hmm. So she had never seen my poetry. I had never seen her photography, but that I, that project kind of lit her up. And so she began going to all the places where I had been and bringing back these pictures. And that's what really made the book special is the combination of the words and the images. And that was, as you described, you know, so totally accidental that it could not have possibly been an accident. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't believe in accidents. I think everything is preordained somehow. So but... well, that's one thing I learned from hitchhiking, that uh, there's no such thing as luck. It's all grace um, or synchronicity or whatever term you want to use. But um, like you, you said in my introduction, um, life has its own intelligence. And um, as long as you're not trying to stay in control um of course you have um, a responsibility um to um, control your your impact on the environment for example or your impact on other people but you still are not totally in control and you've got to allow those synchronicities to uh to get in there through whatever crack they can find mm -hmm. i'm sorry but i interrupted you no, no, that was perfect. So actually, I wanted to talk about hitchhiking. So, you know, I've never hitchhiked, but I know there's a lot of people that they have hitchhiked across the country, across Europe. Um, tell me about that time in your life. Well, um, if I was ever depressed, all I had to do was was catch a bus over to the interstate and stand on the ramp. And it just immediately lifted my spirits. It's such a free existence, getting everything down to the size of a backpack that you can carry. Um, even though I left so much behind in my parents' basement whenever I did this. Um, and for a while, uh, I lived in a little house that my parents owned in the woods of Georgia. But it's such a free feeling and not just uh, physically, but also spiritually because you're opening up to the universe and you can't um you can't have a, a deadline you can't even necessarily have a destination because you know the world may have other ideas and you always had to be open to other possibilities somebody would would come along and offer you a ride someplace and you'd think it over um and maybe the place i was going i would get there a little bit later but it's you know uh, it's just a detour on the way, so there's no reason I couldn't, you know, follow that whim. Uh, usually, occasionally, I had a, a more of a, a deadline situation, getting home for Christmas or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, I just found it taught me so much because I met people I needed to know, 
and I heard stories I needed to hear. I learned things I needed to learn from other people's experience. You don't have to have all the hard knocks yourself if you're open to listening to other people's stories. And often um, those, those people needed someone to talk to or someone to keep them awake or someone to take the wheel for a while. And quite often they would um, uh, feed me a meal, you know, buy, me, buy me lunch. I have a, a book of hitchhiking poems. When I finally settled down, I realized I wasn't probably going to do any more hitchhiking. So all the poems I'd written on the road, I collected in a book called Crossing the Expressway. Mm -hmm. And I have a line in the, um, in the introduction um, uh, about a free ride. And quite often, it comes with a free lunch. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, it's not totally true that there is no such thing as a free lunch. But there always is an exchange, um, even a temporary uh, friendship with someone you're traveling with is still a, a relationship. There still is a, an exchange. You still pay for your ride in, in some way, um, but it's not all, the world doesn't run entirely on cash. And if you look at um, nature, uh, there's a lot of reciprocal relationships out there that are totally outside the human world of, of transaction and exchange. Mm -hmm. So I recommend it to go out in nature and, and learn other ways of relating. Exactly. And is there, um, when you were doing your travels, is there any, any people that you continued connecting with after you had that that trip together? Well, I'm kind of anal about hanging on to people's addresses, but I'm, I'm very bad at actually staying in touch. <laughs> okay. I still have a lot of those people's addresses, but I'm sure they've long since moved on. We're talking in the distant past here, but um, there was one fellow who picked me up and it was before I lived in Atlanta, but he was going to Atlanta and he um, gave me a ride here. And I ended up becoming friends with him years later. In fact, he started coming to my workshops, my earth poetry workshops, mm -hmm. and be became a good friend. And of course, that's a, a total accident, if you believe in accidents. But um, I can't say that I deliberately kept in touch with all those people. I did. A lot of my travels were visiting people I knew from college who had fanned out across the country. And it gave me... Um, someplace to stay sometimes or excuse to go somewhere that I was curious about. But um, I was always careful not to tell them I was coming because I didn't want to end up somewhere else and <laughs> explain, which was, I realize now was not really fair on my part. And usually they didn't mind, but often their spouse didn't like a surprise visitor showing up. And now that I have a spouse, I totally understand. So mm -hmm. I hope those people have forgiven me. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yeah, you know, as you're talking about the the hitchhiking, there's a song, I'm trying to remember the name of it, by Jack Johnson. And it's talking about a train and all the stops it's making along the way. And, it's, and he's kind of wishing that the train doesn't get to where it needs to go. He just likes to enjoy the stops. Uh-huh. He's enjoying the journey so much. And he's enjoying the stops along the way and the meet the people he's meeting that he just wishes the train would just keep going mm -hmm. and yeah. keep stopping. And uh, I wish I could remember the, the name of it, but it's, it's just a great song because it gives you a chance to reflect and to actually go deep and meet people and get to know them and, and experience something totally unexpected. Different. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've heard this quote before. It says, what I'm seeking is somewhere I've never been yet. I've never mm -hmm. been before. And we don't even know sometimes what we're seeking because we haven't been there. So we can't even visualize it. We think we know where we want to go, but we don't always know where we want to go. Well, that's a good metaphor for writing because um, some people actually sketch out the, what their steps they're going to take and, and they outline the whole piece they're going to write. But other people work like I do, um, just um, one step at a time, just following it to see where it goes. And that works much better for me, especially with poetry. Um, uh, I think a lot of 
teachers of poetry and, and poets who write about it will say that um, the, the ending of the poem should be as much of a surprise to the writer as it is to the reader. And that's, that's the most fun kind of poem to write. Yeah, so um, talking about poems, um, do you have your book there, the Wild Atlanta book with you? I do. Um, maybe you could give us a, a sample of some of your poems and what to expect when we get your book. Sure, that would be great. I'd love to get this book on more coffee tables. It's a it's a coffee table book, an oversized paperback, mm -hmm. um, because every page has color photos, um, and you know photos you want to be able to see them really well. And this is the first poem in the book. It's called "The Hospitality of the Trees," and I wrote it for a place in Atlanta called Bush Mountain. As soon as you step into the woods, everything changes. The hot asphalt, the glare of sky, the houses and lawns and cars fade and dissolve into twilight and ivy, a timeless quiet and the fragrance of decay. Even the whine of the saw down the street becomes a distant memory of elsewhere. Walking among the trees, you begin to remember something you can't yet call by name. The trail twists and climbs. Roots travel across under your footsteps, going their slow perpendicular way. Dead leaves and sticks choke a dry plunging gully, stranded where the last rain left them, suspended in time till the next one storms through. Your eyes roam hungrily from tree to tree like any bird on its daily commute. A vine snakes up a skinny trunk and on into the leafy understory, excuse me, the leafy heaven of the understory. Twin poplars stand joined at the base, one a tall straight fountain of green, the other a rotting column of ghostly gray towering naked against the sky. A giant beach sprawls across the muddy stream, its splintered limbs still feeding a festival of spring foliage of the black scar of an old lightning strike exposed at its root. A living breeze begins to stir inside your chest. Each tree speaks to you as in its own voice as you wander under the high branches, gazing up and around, listening through the hush. Every leaf whispers something you can't quite make out, where you came from, perhaps a long forgotten way to live, who you are in this moment unfolding softly underfoot, step after step, maybe even who you were all along. Maybe someday I'll read a poem without messing up in the middle. <laughs> that, that, that was beautiful, really. So, so beautiful. I mean, with, with the, your poems, you, you you take us right into the scene. It made me feel so part of all of that. It's very opening. I'm glad it did the trick. It's kind of a magic trick in a way. Yeah, yeah. It was it was really beautiful. So um, so you. you go and visit these places, and then as you're visiting, you're creating these poems about what you're seeing, what you're feeling. Yes, it's um, it's almost like having a conversation with my surroundings. Um, if I go with another person, I'll be having a conversation with them. But the key to it is is being by myself in that place and just really uh, getting entering a deep relationship with that place, even though, you know, like a like a ride when I'm hitchhiking, it's a temporary relationship. It's not the length of it, but the, the depth of it. And um, I just scribble down notes. And, and when I come home, I try to make them into a coherent way to communicate that to another person. Um, but what I write down in the woods is usually not very coherent. It's a two-step process of bringing it home and um, sitting with that material and, and working it and reworking it till it makes some kind of sense uh, to another person. Well, exactly. And, you know, you're using all the different 
senses, you're using the visual, you're using the auditory, you're using the kinesthetic, the feeling piece of it with, with the words. So that makes sense that you would make notes, which would be the cognitive piece, but then right. have to go home and feel or put into words all the other things. Because you're taking yeah. the visual, you're taking the feeling and the sound. You're you're trying to put that just into words, which you do beautifully. Well, thank you. I also write fiction and I write essays. And I find if I'm writing a lot of poetry or one of those other things, um, the more I do it, it kind of wears a groove into my brain where those, those uh, sensations uh, um, from my senses will that part of my brain will just translate them into poetry usually just little fragments that if i'm careful and quick i can write them down and save them to work on later um with a different part of my brain that that puts together the pieces and tries them in different um configurations and tries to make them coherent but um it's that the key thing is that the more i write in a particular genre the more my brain skips the the part of that's effort that takes effort of translating uh, sensations into uh, rational phrases, mm -hmm. um, it's like um, when you're when you have a craft uh, like playing the guitar, which I could never do. Um, your fingers learn to do it without your brain really being involved. So the more you can get that rational faculty out of the way, and you have a direct connection between your ears and your fingers um, on the keyboard of a piano or the keyboard of a computer, um, you get that rational faculty out of the way and it flows um, directly from one to the other without the intermediary having to translate everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you like to share one more poem? Is there any other ones you'd like to share with us? Yes, thank you. I did pick out two for this and this one is um, less from the individual perspective than, than from the group. And this one is from a place called um, Glen Creek Nature Preserve in Decatur, which is a suburb of Atlanta. It's called Hatchlings. Humans clustered together in a clearing can hardly help sitting in a circle facing each other. Splitting up to wander, they tend to stick to the paths left behind by human feet. But all around this leafy congregation in the midst of the city, a vine-covered chain-link border links the houses like a chain of human hands to guard their lofty green neighbors against the world of chainsaws and backhoes, jet planes and power plants. A litter of crumbling brown corpses softens the steepness of the slopes. Above them, Soaring limbs spread feathery green wings around the hatchlings of human hearts, clustered in a clearing, following the paths, awakening for the first time, perhaps, to the responsibility to preserve, if we can, the life around us that preserves our own. You can tell I'm a missionary kid. It's through. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But that is really wonderful. So um, when you walk into nature and you have this, you know, ability to, to kind of change the nature into words, but when you walk into nature, what is your experience? How do you, how are you feeling that oneness with nature? Well, I don't have um, um, any kind of enlightenment experience. Um, mainly, I'm just noticing the details because, um, especially in this area, um, you know, one patch of woods is pretty much the same as the other. But each time I go in, um, I have a different experience uh, and I notice different details. So um, if you go through the book, the details are what um, really distinguishes one place from the next. And it kind of, like we were saying earlier, it leads you to a different place um, that you, you're you not expecting. It, it's like um, 
I mentioned a missionary kid and um, pretty much my life of activism is, um, is a life of service because that's what brings me joy. And all of my siblings have that too, but in, in totally different ways. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's um, a, a giving back is, is such a intrinsic part of having a fulfilling life for me. Um, so I'm, I, I have a message in all my writings of, of different genres um, because right now is a time when, when um, we, we can't afford to just, we writers can't afford to just try to entertain people because that is distracting people from what's really going on. And the same with uh, um, when I read, I, I can't just read for enjoyment. Um, I, I used to be a novel addict, and uh, but when I wrote my own novel, I used those um, those tools to craft something that tries to introduce people to um, the needs of nature, the relationship that we need to have with nature that's uh, reciprocal and uh, to feed nature as it feeds us. So um, my poems don't consciously begin there as, a, as trying to teach someone a lesson, but that always creeps in by the end because it's, it's so, such a vital need uh, for people to uh, overcome this separation, this, this fear of nature, this, um, um, the need to protect ourselves from nature and, and live in an air-conditioned space and nature is through the window or maybe just through the TV. And that is what is really endangering us all because the reciprocal relationship is missing. So, um, so I do have a mission as a poet, but I write all kinds of poetry. I write love poetry. I write political poetry. Um, I don't try to dictate what my poems will be about, but since that's such a part of me, it always leaks through the, um, the need to awaken people to that. Um, relationship that's that's so uh, dysfunctional in our society. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, you did. And that brings another question, which is, okay, being reciprocal with nature, what, what do you see is our responsibility, our, it's not even the word I want to say, our responsibility, or how can we be one with nature, be reciprocal with nature. Because I, I, I know is, uh, I want to preserve nature. I don't, you know, you see pe people building everywhere and there's sidewalks in so many areas and you think, oh, you know, where are the trees going? Where are the animals going when all these buildings are happening? So what do you mean when you say be reciprocal and, and, and what should we be doing? Well, um, there are, there's so many ways to connect with nature, um, but the, the key thing to remember is that nature feeds us. Um, we can't um, create life. Um, we can't replace the ecosystems we're destroying. Um, the agriculture that feeds us, it, it totally depends on this miracle of the germination of a seed. And uh, there's all, all kinds of technical inputs, technological inputs applied to that process, but um, we haven't yet succeeded in, in inventing something totally synthetic to eat. And even synthetic materials like plastic, um, it all comes from, from the earth, from the elements that, that are here. And um, we just need to be as more and more aware of um, the uh, see the reciprocal relationship already exists. It's what feeds us, but if we are not feeding it in return, then we have diminishing returns. Um, they're they're scraping the bottom of the ocean and, and and catching tons of fish at a time, and and that's just not sustainable. And in a way, sustainability is no longer um, a worthwhile goal because. Um, it's time for radically altering um, the systems that keep us alive, that the, the, um, the, the supply chain from nature to our, our table, our plate, has to be reimagined. And, and this is another key thing is um, uh, it takes so much imagination 
to really understand uh, how ecosystems work, how uh, we can't remove one species and expect it to continue to function, and um, to imagine what the consequences might be and, and apply the precautionary principle because we just don't know enough. Um, there's, there's so little imagination like what it's like um, to live in a, a place like Pakistan, which is bearing the brunt of, of climate change when, when we are the ones who caused it through our lifestyle. Um, there's so much um, the, the entertainment that we, that we are used to um, is it's like taking the place of imagination. Mm -hmm. Children can play a video game that is programmed for them, but um, that stunts the imagination. And uh, imagination is just so important for, for children and, and for adults to, to really understand since nature is way out there. Um, going there is such a, is such a great um, catalyst for, for imagination um, because it eliminates that distance and um, puts us face to face with where we came from. And that is still genetically programmed into us um, biophilia, is, scientists call it, and there's a, um, a thing called forest bathing that they do in Japan. It's actually prescribed by doctors because scientists are just beginning to understand how, how nature feeds us, not just literally, but um, uh, just being in nature boosts your immune system. And they, they're identifying the mechanisms, how it, um, the specific substances that plants release that we, um, we evolved as a species um, relating with these substances and um, having our immune system um, in relationship with, their, with theirs as part of the same ecosystem. So it's, uh, I'm not describing it well, but um, there's a lot of scientific literature coming out now. And, and we are destroying these forests, even as we're learning how valuable they are, not just for us, but you know, to regulate the climate of the, of the planet. So, um, so it's scientists are, uh, they have a great um, respect for imagination because that's how they create their experiments. That's how they create their hypotheses. Um, and they, and scientists have leaps of imagination um, all the time, uh, like the discovery of DNA and the discovery of relativity. Those were intuitive leaps that the scientists made with their creative faculties because they had been deeply pondering these issues and the answer just comes in a dream sometimes or in the bathtub. Mm -hmm. So um, imagination is something that I, I'm trying to cultivate. I'd like to um, work in the schools and work with children and adults um, trying to introduce the importance of imagination. Yeah, that is, that is so true because our kids are playing inside when they should be outside. And I, I know, you know, I, I work inside a lot of times during the day, but like at lunchtime, I'll go for a walk. It's so important mm -hmm. for me to go to that for that walk in the park. I need yeah, to be I by the trees and, the, and there's a little brook there. And on the other side, there's a lake. I mean, it's in Gainesville where I was working. So there's a lake on one side, there's this little trail. And I, I, need, I don't know about other people, I need that. I need to yes. go and be in the sun and see the trees and like, like I'm kind of like Lutz. I take pictures of everything. I take pictures of bugs or animals. I saw a muskrat one day, <laughs> birds, wow. you know, I take pictures of flowers because it's just another way of like enjoying and, but it is so healthy. I, I don't feel as good when I don't take my walk. Uh, well, I should be following your example. I need to get out more too. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so I wanted to ask about recycling. So I know the basic things to recycle. I mean, we recycle our plastic and paper and glass. But I mean, when you talk about doing recycling, what are you telling people about that? Well, um, the, the, the main thing I'm telling people is that um, Recycling is um, a last resort if you absolutely have to buy something in a container or a package. Um, it's best to avoid any kind of packaging, but especially plastic as much as you can. And, um, but once you've purchased that, the responsible thing to do is recycle it. And luckily we have a lot of 
a lot of municipalities have curbside recycling that recycle the basic things. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things that don't, don't fit into their system. They're single stream recycling, it's called, because the recycling that gets picked up at your curb goes to these big plants, massive plants, or they have giant machines that scoop it up and put it on a conveyor system and um, sort it out. So there's a lot of things that don't, um, that that system can't handle. And, um, pl but plastic bags are a big thing and most grocery stores will, will take those and we hope they will recycle them. Um, the thing about recycling is that it is a, um, it's kind of like healthcare. It's a for-profit industry. So if something can't be recycled at a profit, it won't be recycled. So if you live in a big city um, like I do in Atlanta, there's more than likely places to recycle things that a small town person may not be able to recycle. But um, it's like like healthcare; it really is um, far too important to be left to um, a system that has to make a profit from it. So it really should be uh, subsidized. And in Europe and some places, they actually require the manufacturers to take back their, their packaging or even their products for recycling at the end of their lives. And that would really go a long way to encouraging um, companies to be more responsible. Um, it's, it's like in a lot of things, um, the free market is only half of the equation. The government has to um, step in and um, make sure that they are acting responsibly um, rather than just in their own interests, in everybody's interests. And that's, that's a tall order in the United States where the companies tend to regulate the government instead of the other way around. But lately we've had some strides in that direction. And right now there's um, an international treaty that's being worked out to, um, to uh, eliminate single-use uh, single plastics, uh, single-use plastic containers and, and shopping bags and things. And that's actually been accomplished in, in certain countries. The UK recently banned uh, single-use uh, single plastics, certain kinds, and certain states have that. So it's like we're making slow progress on that front, but uh, in the meantime, uh, the plastic industry is just gearing up to, to triple their output, um, partly because they make plastic out of petroleum and they can see the writing on the wall. Uh, the fuel, the fossil fuel industry is kind of, um, its back is against the wall. And so the, the companies that drill for oil are looking for other markets for their petroleum. So um, it, it really um, recycling is only part of it. Uh, the bigger part of it is really pressuring the politicians um, and the candidates to make this a priority, um, to, to basically to regulate the corporations who are will do anything for a profit, including destroy the climate that has sustained life, especially human life, for so many millions of years. They're they're really uh, pushing the envelope there, and and we're in, in big trouble on the climate front as people are discovering in places where all of a sudden their whole life is disrupted by a storm or a flood or a hurricane or a wildfire. It's like those people are awakening the hard way, but we need to be pay attention to what's happening with them and really starting to press um, the political system to, um, to respond responsibly. So it's really up to us. They're, they're not gonna do it on their own. They're getting plenty of pressure from the other direction. Mm -hmm. So that's um, it's the key thing is for people to um, shift their perspective from being a consumer to being a citizen, taking responsibility for what the next generation is going to inherit. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need to be able to look them in the eye and, and say, we, we did what we could. We'll see where that gets us. Mm -hmm. Yes. But recycling is still important. If you bought it, you got to mm -hmm. recycle it. That's right. So I want to switch to a different question, different topic. Um, you you do these rainbow gatherings. What what is that? What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that's funny. I just finished writing an article about it. Um, it's, it's dear to my heart because it's an attempt to create an alternative universe uh, right, right here on Earth in the United States. Well, actually, rainbow gatherings happen around the world. But it started at the end of the 60s when the, the people who had this utopian vision uh, in, the, in the summer of love, they realized that um, there in the city, even in San Francisco, they really couldn't create their vision because of all the, um, the counter uh, forces, uh, the commercialization, the police, the street drugs, there was all those things were, were blurring the vision. So they, they had the, the idea of taking it to the woods and they did the first gathering in 1972 in a national forest in uh, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was centered around a prayer for peace on July 4th. Um, mm -hmm. And lo and behold, 51 years later, this is still happening every July the 4th. Um, and and a, a immense circle thousands of people in a meadow in the forest mm. praying for peace and uh it's a morning of silence in the camp <clears throat> and the silence is broken by a children's parade oh, man. and for a while for quite a while while i was employed and paying off a mortgage i didn't really get to go to the gathering every year particularly once i realized i couldn't in good conscience um fly there in an airplane since often they're in, in different states out west. But I went back um, a couple of years ago after my retirement and it's just as magical as ever, although the people that started it are now uh, old and gray or even gone. Mm -hmm. But this younger generation is picking up and carrying it on. And it's, uh, it's one of the few things you can say that about. So many things I'm involved with you know, the gray-headed people are wondering where the young people are that are going to carry it on in activist movements and other things. But um, but this particular thing is still going on in spite of really um, nasty resistance from the authorities who try to outlaw it in different, different kinds of ways, but they can't seem to stop it. Um, so it's, um, it's primitive camping. Mm -hmm. um, you have to hike into the woods and um, set up your tent. But once you get there, um, everything is provided. It's a, uh, there are um, a couple of dozen kitchens uh, or more um, providing free food run by volunteer labor. Everything is paid for by passing the hat. And it's, a, it's um, if you grow up in this society, um, everything is based on money and it's impossible to comprehend that there's a way to live without money. So this gathering is so important to demonstrate that. And um, um, if it, it gets in the media, it, it was just portrayed as this nostalgia fest, uh, like this fad that's over, but these people didn't get it. They, they think it's still a fad. And it's presented as sensationalized uh, entertainment, but it's real. And um, if you think about it, I mean, the, the Colorado gathering, the 50th gathering, um, last year, um, I think it was 10,000 people. And to get that many people out that far from a hospital mm -hmm. um, and that far from a grocery store and keep them all healthy and fed, it's, it's kind of a miracle. But mm -hmm. what it is, is a lot of people, a lot of people who are dedicated to this vision and they put in the sweat labor to make it happen. And it's really inspiring to see. And then after my third or fourth gathering, I began to sink in how it works. And then I was a, I started plugging in, putting my own energy into it. Um, I can go there and create something, anything at all to give away as long as it's free. Um, I can do a workshop, a poetry workshop, or someone else could do a Tai Chi class. You can do anything you can think of as long as it's nonviolent and free because mm -hmm. money is not allowed. So um, anyway, I recommend it to anyone who can um, actually do primitive camping comfortably. You have to be able to tolerate those conditions to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't have to stay very long, but um, it's, uh, it's a magical experience. Wow. So is it, is it the authorities don't like it because it's so many people in one place? Or why are they, why would they be against it? I mean... 
seems like praying for peace and 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 being kind and and giving to each other is a beneficial wonderful thing so why would people be against it well you have to give them their due they are there to protect the forest um they also are involved in selling off the forest to logging companies at a loss <laughs> but um uh, they also are protecting the parts of the forest that are not being logged. I mean, a lot of our gatherings happen in cow pastures because they've leased the forest to a rancher. Uh, West, that's a, a lot of times the case. But um, you can see that uh, that many people could do a lot of damage to a forest. Uh, the, the fact is that we don't do a lot of damage to the forest, not nearly, nearly as much as a rancher would do. And we have uh, people that are dedicated not only to, to building the gathering, but also to tearing it down disappearing every trace, recycling the trash. I mean, this is this is serious dedication that these, these people have dedicated their lives to this. And some of them have no other home than the rainbow gathering for a couple of months every summer. But um, the, um, the authorities don't like it primarily because they're not in control. And that's because no one is in control. It's a national forest, belongs to everyone. No one can be the leader of this. It's, it's totally decentralized. Everyone is their own leader. And that really freaks them out because they want one person to be in charge and they can hold that person liable. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they have actually sent people to prison for re refusing to be that one person in charge. Several people have, have done federal prison time, um, but they, they want someone to sign a paper and take responsibility. And the problem is, um, if you're signing that paper, you're taking responsibility for people who do not give their consent mm -hmm. for you to represent them. So, and that was finally recognized by a court in a civil civil case. And ever since then, the, the, the permit regulation has kind of been on the back burner. But they, they harass us in all kinds of other ways, in as many ways as possible. And it's really interesting to see what will happen because uh, the Biden administration is looking at um, basically decriminalizing marijuana. And even in states where marijuana is legal in the national forest, we're under federal jurisdiction. So that has been their excuse for a lot of the harassment. Um, they've done lots of illegal roadblocks and things like that. And uh, without, if that excuse were taken away, it would be interesting to figure out what kind of excuse they would come up with to harass people at the rainbow gathering but it's basically a clash of two cultures mm -hmm. and and they are the, the armed protectors of the money economy uh the the society built on money and um they don't like this example of another way and this goes all the way to the top it's um republican Dem democratic administrations uh, it comes under the Department of the Interior, the U.S. Forest Service, and it's, they not only don't understand it, they, they don't want it to spread. They don't want this example to be noticed. They want people to be afraid to go to these gatherings because of their harassment. So anyway, it's a, it's a really interesting social experiment, um, mm -hmm. a microcosm of the, of the conflict between the old world and the new world that's trying to be born. Because people all over the world share these values, share this dedication to nature and um, cooperative living, to equality um, at the gathering. You know, there are rich people there. There are poor people there. You can't tell them apart. They all have got a tie-dye on. That's right. And they're all equal because they all eat for free. They all contribute what they can contribute. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, and, of course, it has its problems and issues, and there are people that – Part of their dedication is to watch over us and um, keep people safe, deal with predators or uh, criminals that are taking their hiding out in the crowd. And we have, um, not me personally, but these people have turned people over to the law who are, you know, wanted criminals hiding out in our gathering. If, if mm -hmm. they, they've cooperated with the the, for, the uh, law enforcement people quite well and, and with the forest protection people. I mean, it's um, we have a really good um, track record of cleaning up our sites and we, we always make sure to get, get it in writing that this site was cleaned up to the forest service satisfaction. Um, so it's something that um, 
it's 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 a microcosm of humanity. It has all the same problems, but it has a different way of dealing with them. Uh, decisions are made by consensus, um, and it's based on the relationships, uh, human relationships rather than money relationships. I could go on and on, so you better stop me. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. So, um, do they only have that like in Colorado, or do they have it in different areas? So, like we're both from Atlanta. But um, do they have it in Georgia? Do they have it in Michigan? Yeah. It moves to a different state every year. At the end of the gathering, people sit down and talk about where the next year's gathering will be. It was in Georgia in 2018. And um, since it came to my state, I did something I always had wanted to do. I took all my poems that I'd written about the different gatherings and I, I published them in a book and I gave away the book at the gathering. Oh, I gave away 400 cool. copies. Wow. Um, I did a GoFundMe and that was so much fun. That was like um, one of the highlights of my life was sitting there by the trail and just giving these books away. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the younger people, um, people have all kinds of misconceptions about it. And I wanted to give them um, um, kind of a, a boiled down version of the, the vision, the original vision um, to counter whatever rumors they might have heard. Some people think it's just a party. Um, people have all kinds of ideas. And of course, it is many things to many people. But the, the basic vision is to create this cooperative society as an alternative to what we live in and make it real, not just a vision. Beautiful. That sounds really beautiful. So I'm going to switch gears here and just ask you a, a personal question. So what gives you the most happiness and fulfillment in your life at this point? Well, um, I really like being able to read my poems to people and keep them there in their seats and not have anybody walk out. Um, in a way, I'm entertaining people. The, I mean, the, the purpose of poetry is to is to bring things to life through language and not to not to lecture people, but to make it sparkle and um, make it resonate. Um, and whenever I don't get a chance very often, I would love to be invited to to do my poetry. The other day, uh, a couple weeks ago, I did about a 45 minute reading and and people stayed. And that really made my day. I just don't get that opportunity very often, but I'm, I'm working on um, my whole goal of marketing this book is part of the goal is to sell the books. I've got boxes in my living room, but the wider goal is to, is to reach people with my message, um, to um, enchant people with the, the magic of nature as, as part of their lives, to lure people into that relationship and um, give them a new perspective on life on planet Earth, what it's about. So um, it's reaching reaching people. I'm I'm really a more of a hermit by preference, but my my poetry um, it, it's it I feel obligated to these poems to mm -hmm. get them out to people in whatever way. I send them to magazines. Mm -hmm. I have very bad luck with literary journals because it's not the kind of poetry I write. They it's not, they don't publish the kind of poetry I'd like because it seems to be so much of the poetry out there seems to be um, aimed at other poets or, you know, English professors or literary critics. It's not really written to communicate. It's, it's written to like impress people or confuse people, um, mystify people. It's like you have to, it's like a puzzle or a game they're playing to see if you can figure out what they're trying to say, or if they're trying to say anything, or just, or just to entertain them with mm -hmm. off the wall concepts that no one ever thought of before. And, and I really think even if I may be repeating what, what other poets have said, but saying in a new way, um, it needs to communicate with people. And even if I, I never meet this person, they're reading my poem somewhere uh, to, to create a relationship um, re reach them somewhere inside where, where they can relate. Beautiful. So now if people wanted to get um, your books or you know, know about you or connect with you, 
Uh, do you have a website? How, how can they connect with you the best? Ah, well, Wild Atlanta has a website. It's wildatlanta.net. And I have a website, stephenwing.com. And I spell Stephen with a PH. Um, I don't know what you get if you tried it with a V. Maybe Google would connect you with it anyway. But anyway, um, uh, part of my, my what I'm enjoying about my website is it's given me a chance to write essays, which I used to write pretty regularly uh, for the local free newspapers. And um, uh, it's, it's called a blog, but it's actually an essay um, giving my, my view of what's going on. I hope a unique view from a poet's perspective of what's really going on behind all of the craziness, the, the, the news cycle, um, trying to get deeper than that. And um, so my blog is one of my favorite projects. I'm writing one each month. I just, um, my September blog was about civility and um, how that is overlooked as the importance of, of uh, treating one another respectfully, um, regardless of our other differences. Um, that is to me the, the kernel of what civilization is about. Um, the fact that, that people can be safe in the streets. Um, and that's something that's not true for everyone but it's something that we need to aspire to as, as the goal of civilization. It's not to pile up possessions or, or control other countries' governments. The, the goal should be to, for the, again, those relationships are the most important thing, even with a stranger we're passing in on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. um, and other things on my website, I did a video of one of my, my poems, my, my poem about climate change is called Washed in the Hurricane. And my nephew is a videographer. We did a video together uh, uh, dramatizing that. And I also have a free ebook on recycling. And I'm, I also have um, descriptions of the different workshops and talks that I'm available to give. And uh, different, I can give poetry readings on different themes. So all that is on there, stephenwing.com. And I'd love to get a visit for many of your your viewers and listeners. Yeah, definitely. I can tell there are there are an elite crowd that's must be the social elite who are tuned into you. No, oh, I don't know. I I hope I have a little message for everybody. That's why I have so many different kinds of guests because hopefully if you don't resonate with this person, you can resonate with that person. That's the idea is to be a place where people can come and they can find something useful, something inspiring for them. Yes. Well, inspiring people is really key um, because there's so many distractions, so many fears, anxieties. Um, people need to be inspired before they're going to make a move and break out of the rut mm -hmm. and aspire to something at a higher level. Exactly. Desperately needed. I think so too. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for sharing all your wisdom and um, learned some amazing things from you. So thank you so much. Well, the world is an amazing place. So keep interviewing people. You'll never stop learning. That is for sure. So I have one last question before we complete. What is your best advice on living an incredible, amazing life? My best advice, um, I would say, um, again, um, focus on relationships more than possessions, and especially pay attention to um, the, the birds, the animals, the, the plants, the trees that don't have a voice, but they're speaking to you anyway and easily overlooked, but um, they, are, they are part of life. Life is a web, it's a network. Um, all the, the uh, trees and the plants are connected underground by the mycelia that, um, that are the, the actual body of the fungus um, that connects everything. Pay attention to connections. Um, look people in the eye and connect with them um, a homeless person on the street, um, anyone you're able to uh, get close enough 
say hello, um, establish that relationship in the first, because it may be the only second that you are in contact with them, but build that, that web of relationships by every, every means you can. That is wonderful advice. Because we are a community. Uh, life on Earth is a community, and that's what's been put in at risk by the culture of individualism. It needs to be balanced with community, and people crave that. So offer it to them. Say hello. All right. I love that. Thank you so much, Stephen. Well, thank you, and thank you for that wonderful smile. Just keep sharing that. That's my advice to you. Thank you. <laughs> we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you, Kimberly. Have a great afternoon.